Welcome to the Vibrant Workplace podcast, proudly supported by NI Job Finder, the place where you'll find vibrant workplaces offering not just jobs, but quality careers. On this show, we explore how companies can build vibrant workplaces that attract, engage, and retain talented people who have a positive experience of work that benefits both employers and employees. I'm Craig Thompson, founder of Vibrant Talent. We help organizations become vibrant workplaces where people want to take jobs, make a positive impact with their work, and feel like it was worthwhile doing it. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with CEO of Radical Candor, Jason Rosoff. There aren't many business books that engage me from front to back, and Radical Candor is one I come back to time and again and preach to my clients repeatedly. Jason co-founded Radical Candor, an executive education company, with author of the book, Kim Scott, and together with a team of passionate professionals, they help organizations move from a culture of command and control to one of collaboration. Jason, welcome to the show. Did you already know Kim then before you got together and set up the company, or did you read the book and were just so inspired by it you had to reach out, or how did your collaboration come together and where did the company come from? Yeah. First, thank you so much for having me on the show and for spreading the word about Radical Candor. Kim and I really appreciate it. It's super helpful. The origin story of the company is a little bit interesting. So I did read the book. At that time, I was the chief people and chief product officer for Khan Academy, which is an online educational not-for-profit. For your global listeners, they may have heard of it. For people in the States, it's much more familiar because it's used in lots of classrooms around the US. And I was at a point when the book came out where I was transitioning out of that job, I had sort of felt it to sort of run its course and I was ready to look for something new, but I'd been there for seven years and it had been quite a journey because I was employee number three. And when I left, we were like 250 people. So I helped grow the company and the product. And so I was taking the step back and I read the book. And as I was transitioning out of the company, I was starting to, I said, I'm going to look, I'm just going to try to have conversations with people who I think are interesting and are do, or either thinking about things in an interesting way or doing interesting things with no actual intent of starting anything. I just wanted to sort of get inspired and try to figure out what might be possible. And it was a complete long shot. I was like, hey, does anybody in my network happen to know Kim? And it was sort of a connection of a connection of a connection kind of a thing. And someone said, sure. So we met in July, I think it was July, it might have been June of 2017. And we just had a conversation because she had started a software company. She talks about it in the book. She starts a software company. And after about a year, they decide to shut it down because they feel like the software is actually a value subtracting round trip. Meaning if the whole point of Radical Candor is to get people to have a conversation with one another, taking your phone out, it might be actually a distraction, not a help. They decided to shut it down. It was very painful, that process of deciding to wind it down. You know, She had commitments to the people who work for her and to the people who invested in the company and all this other stuff. And we had this conversation where I just commiserated with her. I was like, look, I know how hard it is to use software to teach people things, right? That's all I've been doing for the last seven years is like building a platform, a software platform that helps to teach people things. I said, I think part of the problem is that software is not sophisticated enough to gather the context that's necessary to really help someone who might be stuck or struggling. And that was it. That was like the whole conversation. And Kim said, look, I feel like there's this big opportunity around radical candor. We could be doing training. We could be doing other things. I'm an author. I don't really want to spend my time doing that. But if you do, 
the opportunity is there. If you wanted to do something with radical candor, like I'd be interested in continuing the conversation. So I kind of took that as like a compliment and something very kind of her. But I said, look, I'm not ready to jump into anything. So it took us six months of sort of batting ideas around before we decided to form the company in November of that year. So like almost a full six months later, we decided to make a company. And when we got started, we said, look, our secret mission is to rid the world of bad bosses. Well, not so secret <laughs> mission is to rid the world of bad bosses. But I said, really, what we're trying to do is to help people do the best work of their career while building the best relationships of their lives, right? Like, that's what we really want to do is help people do great work and build great relationships. And we're going to do this by doing things that don't scale. <laughs> okay. We're going to start with things that don't scale. So we're going to start with in-person, synchronous, educational experiences and see where that takes us. Mm -hmm. Fast forward six years later, and we don't, not everything's in person anymore, but we're still primarily focused on those sort of synchronous experiences because what we found is that the best way to build muscle of radical candor is in conversation with another human being. Yeah. Okay. I love that, you know, you've got your secret mission and you've got your public mission, I guess. Yeah. With that secret mission, and I think this question is going to lead a particular direction, so that's why I'm asking it, rid the world of bad bosses, okay? What for you makes a bad boss? For me personally, I think the definition is slightly different for everybody, but there's two things that are fairly common in my definition. One thing is they are unclear with me. I struggle terribly with someone especially who's managing me, who cannot be clear with me about their expectations, about what I'm doing well or not doing well. And the other thing that makes a bad boss is that is when they're unkind. So they might be very clear, but yep. they might do it in a way that makes you feel like you're being beaten about the head by a frying yep. pan. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Unfortunately, like most people, I've had bosses who are both unclear and unkind. Like that's the worst mm. possible combination, right? Where it's like, you don't know where you stand with the person. They're just kind of a yeah. jerk to you a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I like this mission is because what I've come to realize is that a lot of people have no idea that that's the impact that they're having on people. I used to think my boss knows what they're doing and they're choosing to be this way. And since I started mm -hmm. doing, well, as I matured in my career and made some of those mistakes myself... <laughs> and was a bad boss to other people, I started to realize, oh, this isn't about intent. Impact matters. But part of the problem is they don't know how they're coming across. And that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to Radical Candor. Because as we were chatting before the show started, you said, look, it's so simple. Like The model is so simple. And that is helpful because it paints a picture of what good looks like. And I actually think that that is one thing that is desperately needed in the world of management, which to yeah. this day, in my mind, remains largely undefined. Like, what is the discipline? What is the job of management remains largely undefined? Yeah. And when you say, you know, about it being so simple, I actually mean that in a complimentary way. There's an expression that of goes course. around or a, a quote that goes around, and I don't even know if it's true, if it can be attributed to him, but supposedly it came from Einstein. And it's everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Whether Einstein ever said that or not, who knows? But I always think about that quote, and I think there's a real skill and a real art in taking something complex, making it so simple that anyone can use it. And when I came across this book, by the way, one thing I would say about the book is there's a lot of business books out there where it's one tiny idea and an entire book written about it that makes the same point 110 different ways. I find it really difficult to read a lot of business books front to back because it just seems like they wrote a book that they didn't need to write. 
With Radical Candor, from front to back, there's so much in it that I find to be absolutely compelling and so useful, which is why I always recommend it to people. But back to the point, simplicity. What was the journey? How did Kim get to the point where she went, these are the component parts of a great conversation that enables people to be clear and kind and ultimately get results? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a life's journey, and then it was four and a half years of writing the book. For people out there who have never attempted to write a book, like me, it has been really inspiring to work with someone who tries to write at this level of depth and at that level of length about any topic. So hats off to anybody who's attempted to write a book. But what I've learned from observing Kim do this is that it is a deeply iterative process. And the best versions of that process are not solo efforts, meaning you're constantly getting input and feedback from other people. And that was part of what made Radical Candor successful from my perspective, because Kim wasn't just writing it as a book. She was trying to live it. She was trying to breathe life into it in her own work, whether as a manager at Google or then as a sort of professor at Apple University. She was trying to find ways to breathe life into the idea in reality. And she tried a bunch of things that didn't work. So I think in the same vein as the sort of myth of overnight success, I think a lot of people look at the output of Radical Candor and like, wow, how did you arrive at it? Well, it was like 10 years of hard labor, basically, yeah, and lots of wrong decisions. But really, the process that led to success was an iterative one where she knew that she had the kernel of an idea, but she didn't know exactly how to express it. And the way that she figured out how to express it was by trying to express it to lots of people over and over and over again, and failing many, many times before she got to a version of the expression that worked really well. And to your point, there were versions that were much more complicated, and there were words that didn't resonate with people. There was lots of different types of iterations that happened. But really, it was the process of in conversation, in interactions with people, trying to explain it to them and seeing people's sort of eyes glaze over that led her to the simplicity that everybody sees in the book. Okay. So for those who haven't yet come across the book, what on earth is radical candor? What is this term? What is this guy talking about? Yeah. So radical candor is a simple but not easy approach to relationships and conversations And the way that Kim describes it is is the combination of caring personally and challenging directly. And so on the cover of the book, if you see it, there's a two by two grid with care personally on the vertical axis and challenge directly on the horizontal axis. Mm -hmm. And in the upper right-hand quadrant, you've got radical candor, right? The intersection Mm -hmm. of care personally and challenge directly. But she didn't stop there. She also described like what the other quadrants are. So like, what does it look like when you fail on one or more of those dimensions? And I think the combination of those things makes it much easier to say what went right in that conversation Mm. and what went wrong in that conversation. How can we correct the things that went wrong and make them go more right in the future? And actually, I think you're spot on. I think... Those other quadrants of what happens when you're not caring personally and what happens when you're not challenging directly, yeah. those quadrants in the book teach you so much about why you need to be radically candid. Yeah. You learn as much from those as you do from the radical candor quadrant. The reason why I think it's such a simple but effective tool is because for me, since I read that, anytime I need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, and maybe there's more to it than this, but the way that I approach it is... I know I only need to ask myself two questions in advance. One is, what do I need to do to ensure in this conversation that I demonstrate that I'm caring personally with the other person? 
And secondly, what do I need to do to ensure that I do challenge them directly on the thing that I need to challenge them on? If I ask myself those two questions in advance, it really frames the conversation that I'm going to have, which is brilliant. But for you, okay, I have my own ideas about this, but it's your company, okay? So for you, what is it that someone can do and should do that would demonstrate that they are caring personally? Well, I think this is one of the things that Kim got most right in the book was a recognition that radical candor is not a universal experience. And that doesn't mean that the concepts aren't universal because if you abstract those axes, care personally and challenge directly out, you get love and truth. And there isn't okay. a culture or a person in the world that doesn't value love and truth, right? Like those are universal mm -hmm. human values. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, how people express love and what truth looks like mm -hmm depends on the person that you're talking to. And I would say there are also some sort of like cultural norms and things like that that are worth taking into account. But the most important thing is the person sitting across from you. What do they consider a demonstration of care? What do they consider a demonstration of candor, right, of truth? And from my perspective, that is the essential element that Kim got right. And it's one of the most frustrating things for people who read the book because a lot of people are like, just give me a script right? Like, how do I do this? Like, what are the words that I say that yeah. are going to demonstrate that? And Kim says, look, I wish I could tell you, but mm -hmm. what you can do is you can measure. So you can say, my intent is to be really clear with you and also to be kind. And I'd love to know if I'm not achieving both of those goals in this conversation and what I can do differently in order to make it better. So for me, showing care personally is often sort of like, getting directly to the point. I'm mm -hmm. very sensitive to people who seem to be beating around the bush. Like I'm like, right. okay, just like, tell me what you want to say. But for other people that may come across the exact opposite. Like if you just dive into the conversation that it may come across as abrupt or sort of rude or maybe even mean spirited. So we have to be really careful when we think about those definitions. But yeah. what I can say is that the x-axis, meaning the zero point on the care personally, that vertical axis, we do know what that is. And that is common human decency and respect. Mm -hmm. That is the minimum that you owe other people. If yeah. you are not demonstrating common human decency and respect, you are not caring personally about that person. Even that, though, ties back into what you've just said previously about cultural norms and makes it a bit more complex because... What it means to show common human decency and respect to you and to me and to somebody from somewhere else in the world, India, Germany, Czech Republic, all these different places, you know, Canada, USA, South America might mean something slightly different. I saw someone posting the other day on LinkedIn and they were saying, treat others the way you would like to be treated. And on a simple level, there's a nice message to it. But at the same time, the way that you would like to be treated may not be the way that they would like to be treated. So you really Correct. have to get to know your people, don't you? Yeah. I mean, there's no substitute for it. They call that the golden rule, treat others how you would like to be treated, which has been preempted by the platinum rule, which is treat others how they would like to be treated. And what I would say is there is a lot of confusion in the world about how to get to know somebody. I think this idea of how do you build relationships or how do you get to know somebody in the context of work in a way that is not overly personal and not invasive, you know what I'm saying? Like you want to find a way to have that conversation that feels natural. And 
one of the best ways that we know of to do that is to ask that person, like, what are their goals at work? Like, what do you want to accomplish? Where are you going? And how can I help you get there? Right? That conversation is often more revealing than just work. Because often when someone says, well, here's where I'd like to be, and they'll often share the reason I want to be there is because, you know, I want to have kids in a few years. And that's important to me. Family is very important to me. They'll often share those underlying reasons, often reveal a little bit more about themselves as a person, which will be really valuable to you. But you've done that in the context of a completely appropriate work conversation. So this idea of get to know you conversations or career conversations, however you want to frame them, I think are a great process that people can go through. And Kim does describe those in the book. Yeah. Okay. So with regards to the grid, okay, and these four different quadrants, I'd like to just talk for a moment about basically what happens when you don't challenge directly and you don't care personally. So obviously that quadrant in the book is called manipulative insincerity. And I love these titles, by the way, all these titles are brilliant. I'm sure there was, as you say, that iterative process to get to this point. There was, of calling yes. them these. But they're so memorable. So manipulative insincerity, what does that actually mean for those who are listening and haven't yet come across the book? Yeah. So that's the lower left-hand quadrant where you're not caring and you're not challenging. I think instead of trying to define it, it's easier to give examples. So an example of manipulative insincerity would be a false apology, for example. So maybe you're in a disagreement with somebody at work and you're sort of getting tired of the disagreement and you say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. Sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. (laughs) Yeah. That is an example of manipulative insincerity. There are extreme examples of manipulative insincerity, which are like backstabbing behavior, like highly political behavior, where you're actually undermining other people for your own benefit. It's really about Mm -hmm. you and it has nothing to do with other people. But I would say the most common example of manipulative insincerity that exists in every single workplace that I have worked in and every single workplace that I have talked to is talking about someone instead of talking to that person directly. Yep. Yep, exactly. And ultimately, that leads to all kinds of problems. Yeah. I often get this question, which is like, how do we build trust? Mm -hmm. And I say, do you do this? Do you allow people to vent? Do you listen to people when they complain about others? Well, stop destroying trust (laughs) is like step number one, (laughs) because what happens as a manager, it's very tempting to say, look, my job is to like, listen to my team members. Mm -hmm. But in this case, when someone is giving you what is essentially feedback about another person, it is really important to say, look, whether you're the person's manager, a peer, whatever, to say, look, I think it's really important that you tell Jason directly what you're telling me. Because I don't want to be in the position of having to keep something from Jason that might be helpful. And it's not my observation. It's your observation. So it's important that you have that conversation directly. And that can feel really awkward to do. But honestly, the moment you normalize the idea of like we talk about each other behind one another's backs, everybody assumes that it's happening. And it is this constant sort of like weighted blanket on trust. It prevents trust from growing. So actually, that leads in really nicely to, I reached out to some clients and some regular listeners to the podcast in advance to get some questions from them about what they wanted to know about the book. And one person, a fan of the book, had asked about trust and they'd said, if I could ask you, do you think trust is key to radical candor being successful or can it still be effective without that? Unfortunately, this is the sort of classic chicken and egg question when it comes to radical candor. I don't think it is possible to build trust without radical candor. Mm -hmm. Which of the other quadrants would you live in to build trust? Would it be obnoxious aggression where you're challenging but not caring? Would it be manipulative insincerity, which we just described? Or would it be ruinous empathy where you never challenge anybody on anything at the surface level that you care 
but everybody knows that there are problems that aren't being discussed. Which of those quadrants yeah. builds more trust? Perfect answer. Perfect answer. And, you know, we talked then about manipulative insincerity. Let's talk about ruinous empathy then for a second, where sure. you care, but you don't challenge. What's the problem with that? I mean, I think the problem is that we're pretending that people don't know that there are real problems. So one of the most common reasons why, especially coming out of the pandemic, a thing that I heard all the time was, look, things are so hard right now and everything's so complicated and people don't have childcare and all this stuff, like there's myriad problems going on. I feel like if I tell this person that their work is really suffering, that I'm going to really hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. But I was about to reveal the secret, which is there's another thing slightly underneath that, which is, and I'm going to come across as a jerk. That is manipulative insincerity. Worrying about how right. you will be perceived is manipulative insincerity. Yeah. But worrying about hurting someone else's feelings is ruinous empathy. And the problem with ruinous empathy is that you are pretending, two adults are yeah. pretending that nothing is going wrong. <laughs> yep. But in reality, both adults know something is wrong. Yeah. And for me, the hard part is when I feel like I'm not doing my best work and no one is saying anything about it, Mm -hmm. I'm like, they must be talking about me behind my back. This must be so obvious that my work, you know what I'm saying? And then I start to distrust people. So even though the intent is driven by ruinous empathy, I often experience what amounts to manipulative insincerity. So like that is the problem is that things go unsaid. And pressure builds when things go unsaid. The longer things go unsaid, the more difficult it becomes to talk about them. And a very common pattern is you live in ruinous empathy, and instead of transitioning to radical candor, you swing all the way down to obnoxious aggression because you get so frustrated that the thing hasn't been resolved, even though you haven't given the person the feedback and they haven't had the opportunity to fix it, you wind up being a jerk about it instead of being clear and kind. And actually, that was exactly where I was going to lead to next, because I think I get stuck there sometimes. I get stuck in the ruinous empathy space where I want to give people the autonomy and I want to trust them to be able to see something for themselves. And I don't say sometimes what needs to be said. And the problem is then within me, it builds up and builds up and builds up and I start to bottle it up and then I'm getting more frustrated and I'm thinking, why does this person not see what's going on here? And then one day, boom, it all comes out and I say exactly what needed to be said, but I haven't done it in a way where I've cared personally about the person. I've been that jerk. I've been obnoxiously aggressive. So do you want to tell people then about why that's a problem? Yeah, I think Kim made a statement in the book, which we come to regret slightly. She says, obnoxious aggression is the second best quadrant. I remember that. Yeah, I remember reading. At least the problem is clear. But it is so terribly inefficient. And it's so terribly inefficient because the whole purpose, the only purpose of giving someone feedback, when you think about this as like, if the goal of feedback is to help someone grow, If that is the goal of feedback, then obnoxious aggression is deeply inefficient because it often leads to people sort of going into fight or flight, shutting down or freezing, shutting down, as opposed to being open and able to take on that information. And on top of that, you've done reputational or relational damage, right? When people get hurt by the words that you say, you now have a debt like a relationship debt that needs to be made up in order for that person to fully trust you again. And I think this is especially true when there's a power imbalance in the relationship. So I think it's different if it's two peers and one is obnoxiously aggressive to another. But if you're the boss and you are obnoxiously aggressive to your team member, you have done real damage 
I should say there's a high probability that you've done real damage to that relationship and you're going to make it very hard for that person to hear what you have to say. Yeah. And so it's not really the second best quadrant. It's sort of like, I understand the argument. She, I mean, she also doesn't feel the same way about it anymore. And especially when it becomes a pattern of behavior, it actually goes, it shifts away from being useful at all and becomes bullying, right? Like if you're obnoxiously aggressive to someone all the time, like that's bullying behavior because you're not mm. actually helping them. So I think like, and here's the problem. We've all done this. We are all guilty of this. That was one of the other things that was a relief to me about reading Kim's book, which is like, it was not a personality test. It was just sort yeah. of a recognition of human, I don't want to call it weakness, but like mistakes that we make in relationships. Yeah. And for me, that was so liberating because I was like, oh, it's not about who I am as a person. It's about how I behaved in the moment in this particular interaction. And mm provides me a compass for sort of making it better. Yeah. Yeah. And I clearly remember that when I first read the book. I have a different copy of the book now. It doesn't have your flashy grid on the front. So I've oh, got this one. sorry about that. But yeah, I clearly remember reading that first time around. And, you know, it was basically saying at least people know where they stand because you've told I just them. To, there we go. That's so the one a, I want. A video of it. <laughs> Very good. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess the point was, yeah, people know where they stand because you've challenged them. But as you say, the relationship's not going to be sustainable then. Going to be a lot of work to do to try and repair that relationship. And ultimately, if people work for an obnoxiously aggressive boss, if that's the norm, they're not going to stay in that company and they're not going to perform for that person. Yeah. And I would say like a totally natural reaction to working for someone who behaves like a jerk a lot of the time is to respond with manipulative insincerity. And so you sort of have those two quadrants that are below the care person line are very related to one another because mm -hmm. I don't blame someone who's getting yelled at all the time, for example, for not engaging productively in dialogue with their manager. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you can't blame that person. That's psychological self-defense, right? You're under attack. It's sort of natural to retreat and not to show care or to challenge or try to like disappear. You know what I'm saying? To minimize the surface area on which you can get attacked. That's a symptom mm -hmm. of manipulatively insincere environments is like people make themselves smaller. They don't talk mm -hmm. about what they're doing. They don't talk about their accomplishments because of the fear that someone is going to be a jerk to them. Yeah, exactly. So tell me this, back to what we were talking about at the start of the recording. You've got this model, Okay. I'm wondering if someone comes across this book and they read the book and they're thinking, that's brilliant. What happens if they now start adopting that radical candor methodology, but they're in a culture, they're in a business that isn't used to it? Can that cause problems in any way? I think if you assume that radical candor is all about bosses criticizing their team members, it can definitely cause problems. If you actually follow the advice in the book, which is in addition to the framework, Kim talks about this thing called the order of operations. So the framework is a compass that helps you evaluate and guide conversations. But the question of implementation is not, she doesn't leave that to the framework. She actually leaves that to this thing she calls the order of operations. And the order of operations is get it, give it, gauge it, and encourage it. Right. And it's very important that the order of operations starts with soliciting feedback. Another way yeah. to say this is that if you are in an environment that doesn't already value feedback. You have to create a market for it. And you cannot create a market for feedback by criticizing other people. Mm -hmm. If people are not used to receiving feedback, it just won't work. Well, I should say it'll work about 30% of the time. Right. Okay. So the research shows that feedback interventions that focus on criticism mm -hmm. 
And only 30% of the time do they lead to an increase in performance. 30% of the time they're neutral and 30% of the time they actually lead to a decrease in performance. Yeah. And you talked about your public facing mission, okay, is to help move cultures from command and control to one of collaboration. I can imagine there are still some organizations out there, there are still some dinosaurs out there who they see all these ideas about the new world of work and how things have evolved and they drag their heels and they don't really believe in it, etc. Why do they need to move from command and control? Can command and control ever actually work? Well, it would be really disingenuous to say that it can't work because command and control, bureaucracy is another way to describe command and control, was an incredibly important innovation for human development. Because prior to bureaucracy, the only tools of command and control were brutality, right? Like the only way we got people to work was by threatening them or enacting physical violence. So we created bureaucracy, which is still command and control, still focused primarily on hierarchical power. But the whole idea of it is like, we don't, it's not brutal. Like we don't physically brutalize people. Most of the important inventions of human history were created in command and control environments, but the world is changing and the Mm. nature of work is changing. Many of those command and control environments worked in part because jobs could be very neatly compartmentalized. A lot of the jobs that could be very neatly compartmentalized are being automated. They're not human tasks anymore, or in the next 50 years will become non-human tasks. So think about production lines and things like that, where it was very easy to say, your job is to put this widget inside this machine. Now a robot can do that nearly as efficiently as a person. And the job that exists in the factory is someone who understands the process and the robots and all this other stuff. And the question is like, can you tell them what to do? Or do they need to be able to decide in the snap of a finger, hey, I see this problem and I need to make an adjustment to how the line is running. The moment the majority of work transitions from widget management (laughs) Mm -hmm. to decisions about what to do, command and control works less and less well. And if you take, for example, an organization that people think of as highly command and control, the military. Mm -hmm. In the military, one of the jobs of a commander is to communicate what's called commander's intent. And the reason why this is so important is because in the fog of war, right, let's say you go into battle and we think these are grunts, they only follow orders. Well, what if comms go down? What if your commander is killed? Now what do all of these grunts do? Well, that commander was responsible for communicating commander's intent. The goal of the battle was supposed to be clear to each one of those soldiers so that in the event that communication breaks down, they can make decisions. Now that doesn't make mean they make all decisions all the time, but even in this environment, we tend to think of it as highly command and control. They have systems of redundancy that inform yeah. and educate the people who are at the bottom of that sort of hierarchy so that in the event that they need to, they can make independent decisions on their own. And if the military says, look, this is the only way that we can do this, there is no other organization in the world that I can think of that needs the level mm-hmm. of discipline that the military does. Yeah. Like We can all learn from that example. It's funny that you bring that up because I had a previous episode of the podcast that I recorded with a guy called Gavin Hendry, who is now a COO. He's transitioned out of the military. He's working in traditional business. But we were talking about some of the assumptions that people make about leadership and culture in the military versus business and what an ex-military hire can bring to a business. 
But one of the things that he said is, you know, talking about dispelling myths, one of the things that he said was anybody who thinks military leadership is autocratic leadership is very, very wrong. And it's for the reasons that you just mentioned. You need to have people who can think on their feet. You need to have people who can take control of a situation. So expecting those people to just follow orders, that's not really the way that it works in the military. They need to be able to follow orders, but they also need to be able to have that autonomy and trust and think for themselves too. So the other thing that I would say based on what you've said there, Jason, is the world of work is changing was a comment that you made. And therefore it might be that 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe command and control was the expected norm then. So it may have been something that worked back then. But if you're a command and control organization today and your competitor companies are not operating that way, are you going to be left behind? Yeah, I think there's this question that keeps coming up for me about what do people want? Like, what do people who work for you want? I think there are environments in which certainty is highly valued. Like, I need certainty in order to proceed. And in those cases, having some level of direction is really valuable. But even then, like the factory line worker who's responsible for managing a line, for example, like they need direction. They need to know what the goal is. It needs to be clear in their minds. So this doesn't mean like everybody just do whatever you want. But the difference is in order for you, Craig, to do something, do I, Jason, have to tell you to do it? Mm -hmm. Because the problem is both that that's hard for employees. You don't want people who are waiting around to be told what to do and terribly inefficient for the business. So I think unless it is absolutely essential to the work that you do for there to be commands that are followed strictly, it is almost always going to be more efficient to describe the goal and allow people some level of autonomy to figure out how to get there, because then you're taking advantage of the brain power that people have. And on top of that, most people prefer to be in an environment where they can use their brains, they can think through problems creatively. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the day, if we've hired these people because we believe that they could contribute something, then why would we not want them to be creative and to contribute something? That's right. I think the whole idea of having a team at all, if only one person is doing the thinking, like I think unless the labor is very physical and what you need is the physical ability to do things, if the labor requires any thinking at all, you are wasting this incredibly valuable resource that you have, which is an independent thinking of all the people on your team. From my perspective, in all the work that I've done in my career, because it hasn't been that sort of physical labor, the biggest mistakes that I've made have been rooted in not leveraging the collective intelligence of the people who work for me. Yeah. Okay. What I'm really interested in now is if I am a people and culture director and I've came across this book and I've thought, this is brilliant. We need to have this kind of culture in our business. We need to have those authentic conversations. How do I go about cascading that across a business? And obviously that's what you do with your business. You now take this, I'm assuming you train it out, you coach on it, you maybe speak at conferences and things. So how does someone go about cascading radical candor as a method across their business? Yeah, there are a few ways. I mean, one way is, and I would be remiss as a CEO of the companies, you can hire us and we will help you. (laughs) (laughs) But if that's not in the cards for you, for whatever reason, we do have lots of different resources that we built that are designed to help people. I think one of the simplest things that people can do is read the book with their teams. We have a really great book discussion guide on the website that walks you through sort of chapter by chapter, like things to talk about with your team. And I think the part of this is 
and if that's too much effort, there's also, we have recorded keynotes and stuff that are available. So if you want to like watch something together for an hour, we have this really cool product that we created, which is called the Feedback Loop, which is essentially like a short movie, an hour long film about radical candor. It's narrative and comedy driven and all this other stuff. And you could watch that together with your team. That's also available on radicalcandor.com. So there's like a bunch of places that you can start, but it really does start with sharing the idea as opposed Mm. to diving into action. Although I would say the one action that is pretty safe for leaders who are excited about this idea to take is to start intentionally soliciting feedback from their teams. I talked about earlier this idea of the order of operations, get it, give it, gauge it, and encourage it. And the reason why getting it is so important is that one, just out of enlightened self-interest, you could become a much better manager if you had the feedback of the people on your team. Two, you send a signal to the organization that feedback is really valuable here. And I'm showing you that feedback is valuable because I'm interested in your feedback as opposed to trying to make you interested in my feedback. Yeah. Sharing the ideas and soliciting feedback are pretty safe like as a place to start mm-hmm. for almost any person and, and, and any organization. So either of those two, I think, are great places to start. And then if you want to think about how do you create a culture of feedback, I think it's really important to make sure that you pay attention to the other three steps. So when we say give feedback, we do not just mean criticism. In fact, Kim yeah. goes out of her way in the book, and this is backed up by research to say that praise is far more important from a developmental perspective than criticism is. Like criticism is essential. There are some people who believe that criticism is not essential, that like you shouldn't give criticism ever. And from my perspective, that point of view misses that sometimes things are going badly enough that if you don't address them directly by looking back at what has gone wrong, you are very likely to sort of continue to perpetuate either bad work output, sort of bad behavior, or even worse, an environment of harassment or bullying or other things. Like sometimes you have to talk about what's gone wrong. But on balance, it should be less often than than we're talking about what's going right. And one of the best ways to illustrate this, I think there's a small study that was done and has been repeated in classrooms where they took students who had behavior problems that were like interrupting a lot in class and all this other stuff. And they did a series of interventions. One of the interventions was sort of classic criticism where they said, hey, you know, you interrupted. And as a result of your interruption, other people didn't get to learn as much. What could you do differently in the future? And then they tried another tack, which was, hey, today you didn't interrupt. And because you didn't interrupt, we got through the entire lesson People were happier. We really appreciated that. I wonder if you can continue doing that again in the future. And the reason why I think this is instructive is because people are like, oh, it's a classroom. These are kids. What the kids are not expert at is self-management. And what you're teaching them is positive target identification through praising the moments where they are doing it right. It turns out that that was more than twice as effective at increasing the right behavior than criticizing the wrong behavior. And the reason why I think this is instructive is we often forget that people on our teams are not experts at everything that they're doing. And often it is far more helpful to identify the right thing than it is to Mm -hmm. criticize the wrong thing. So that's why that balance is so important because we might be expert in that thing. And so for Mm -hmm. us, it might be useful to get that criticism, but for the team member, it might be far more useful to receive the praise. If you think about it, it's such an important point. I love that study as well that you've referenced, but If you think about it, if the person is still employed in your company, then you have to make the assumption that they're doing a lot right. 
But yes. yet the only time they hear from us is when they're doing <laughs> the thing wrong. So they're probably doing a lot more right than wrong. Otherwise, why are they still there? And yet the only time that we give them feedback is to criticize. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you're going to step two, which is like starting to give more feedback, you want to make sure that you get that ratio right. And when we talk to organizations, this is a big challenge that faces companies is that the ratio is off. And as a result, people feel sort of henpecked. I don't know if a common enough idiom, but they feel like they're being picked on, right? Like that everything that they do that wrong is being pointed out and none of the stuff that they do right is being pointed out. Yeah. And then if you're going to give criticism, you need to make sure that it is high quality, clear and actionable criticism. And so in addition to the sort of mindset mantra that you have, like, how am I going to demonstrate that I care personally? How am I going to challenge directly? We introduced in the book this idea of core, which is a way to describe the components of high quality feedback. And this applies to both praise and criticism, but it is especially important if you're going to offer criticism. And core stands for, or corn, if you prefer, stands for context, observation, result, and next steps. Those are the components of effective feedback. Context is the where and when, the specific situation in which the thing happened. Observation is what was said or done. Result is the outcome or impact that the behavior mm -hmm. or work had on you or on the team or on the goal that that person had. And next steps is a suggestion for where to take the conversation or what to do after the mm -hmm. conversation. And so a concrete example of that might be, hey, in that last meeting, I noticed that you interrupted Craig a whole bunch of times. And as a result, Craig didn't get to share his perspective. And I think that weakened our ability to make a decision in the moment. And as a result, we ended the meeting without making a decision. Mm -hmm. And so the next steps is I might say, I'm unsure if you're even aware of that. Were you aware of that? Like that mm -hmm. might be the next step is to check whether that person is aware of that behavior. But maybe you've had the conversation before and the next step might be, you know, I've told you this a couple of times. I'm kind of curious, like, how are you feeling about the changes you've tried to make in order to prevent that from happening? So like those next steps are really about where to take the conversation as opposed to like a directive of exactly what the person needs to do. And for me, that's such an important part of it because you can have these theoretical or hypothetical conversations about things and people can nod along and say, yeah, I get the point. But do they know what is expected of them in future? Yeah, if they're in that situation again. So that's so powerful. I'm really curious about a couple of things based on what you said. One of the things that you talked about is it being really important to start with soliciting feedback before you're giving feedback. Soliciting feedback, unless I guess you've trained this out across your workforce, that feedback that you receive is probably unlikely to come in a radically candid way. Is that right? So how do you get those people then to start to give you the feedback in a radically candid way as well? I think there are a couple of things that we can do. One, we can ask better questions. So when I find that the feedback that I get is either vague or let's say non-existent, meaning the person's like, ah, no, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. It's usually because I'm not asking a good enough question. Mm -hmm. And a good question is specific and clear. What you're asking for is obvious. So like if I'm asking for criticism, I want to be clear that I'm asking for criticism. So I want to say, hey, Craig, over the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to manage my interruptions and in meetings a little bit better, but I feel like I'm falling short. Do you have any guidance for me on things I could be doing better? Or have you noticed any opportunities where I could have done better in meetings? Mm -hmm. I'm being really clear that my goal is to do better. I don't think I'm doing good enough. I'm asking for criticism. I also pointed you to a time period. I said the last couple of weeks. So it's not all time. 
and everything. And it's not about anything. It's not completely open-ended. I'm asking about something specific. I find that those kinds of questions can help get the ball rolling. We call that a Mm go-to question. And it doesn't literally have to be the only question that you ask, but it's important to formulate them ahead of time so that you don't wing it. And when you get into the conversation, you say, hey, do you have any feedback for me? And then Craig says, no, everything's fine. Funny enough, I just had a conversation just like that before we came on to record. I've been having an employee experience platform built and I was sharing some of the sort of previews of it to somebody and I asked them, you know, if they could give me some direct feedback about it. And the person said, yeah, I think it looks great. I admire your persistence. I admire your creativity, what you're trying to do. The brand looks great, et cetera. That's not helpful to me. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for somebody to blow hot air up me. I want someone who's going to tell me what am I not thinking about so that I find it out now before it's too late. Yeah, and that's, where and that's a much better point. question. Yeah, so what you just said is a great question to ask. Is it say, look, I need your input and I'm specifically looking for insight about what I'm not thinking about now that's going to prevent me from being successful when we launch. That is what would be really helpful to me. And I think when you do that, so it may not work immediately. Meaning that person may say, you know, I need to think about it or I'm not exactly sure. And that's okay. I don't think we should be disappointed if the person sort of like pushes us off. But the obligation on the part of the person asking is not to give up. (laughs) It's to be persistent and keep asking. And the thing is, I think people think that they're being the most helpful by being nice, but yeah. nice doesn't help me. You know, the agency that are building the platform with me, I told them from day one, I said, look, I want to work with people who are going to challenge me, who are going to offer ideas and suggestions because I'm just one person and I might have an idea and it might be absolutely crap. It might be the worst idea in the world. You might be thinking, this guy, why is he getting us to do this? Rather than thinking, why is he getting us to do this? challenge me on it because it might be a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly the right attitude to have. And essentially you are embodying the growth mindset, right? This idea that I have stuff to learn still, like I might be wrong. And you're also embodying humility, right? Like my ideas aren't necessarily the best ideas and someone always ideas might be better. And I think humility as a mindset, as a point of departure and a growth mindset, the belief that you can grow and do better in the future are pretty essential attitudes of management. And I do think that not every manager has those attitudes today. Now, I happen to believe like everyone has the possibility of growing. But if you don't believe you have the possibility to grow, it's very hard for you to grow. So like part of the work is getting managers to adopt those attitudes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me this, if I'm thinking about this from a different perspective, if I am, let's say, an operational frontline employee working somewhere. I don't have that sort of seniority or rank yet, okay? And I'm now loving this and I'm thinking this is a great way to communicate. Does this work going up as opposed to down if my boss doesn't know that I'm going to start adopting this style of communication? So can I give that feedback up if they don't know? How do you think that's going to go? The answer is it depends. Obviously, there's more risk if you don't have institutional power or cultural power, there's more risk, especially criticizing. And so one of the things we say is that it doesn't matter if you're a frontline employee or a boss and you're trying to implement this, you still start with the order of operations. You still start by soliciting feedback. You still make sure you're giving more praise than criticism. Like you don't want the first sort of conversation about your boss's performance to be negative. 
Because you're building a relationship and human beings, mm. while we're not coin operated, like we need to make some deposits in that relationship bank if we're going to offer criticism and expect it to be received positively. And so starting by soliciting feedback, one of the sort of magic things that tends to happen when you solicit feedback is that people often feel pressured to reciprocate. Oftentimes I'll say, hey, you know, Craig, what could I have done better in that mm. interview? And you might share a thing or two. There's this innate pressure. Humans like reciprocal relationships. So there's this innate pressure to say like, hey, what could I have done better? So like, you might even get yeah. there faster by soliciting feedback and have that person be more open to it. So when I say this, they're like, oh, it sounds inefficient. And like, mm -hmm. But it might be far more efficient than starting by criticizing someone, damaging the relationship <laughs> and having to rebuild from there. And I think, you know, back to what you said, we need to remember that those managers are also human beings. Yeah. Because it's easy to think of someone who is, I hate that word, superior. I don't want to say superior, but, you know, who yeah. outranks us, okay? More senior than us. It's easy to think of those people, not as a person, but by their job title. But often I find what happens is someone gets promoted in a company, they become responsible for a team of people, and we expect them, as business owners, we expect them to create this great experience of work for everybody else, but everybody above and below them forgets about their experience of work and they're caught in the middle. Yes. I think it is one of the most painful parts about sort of middle management. I would say any level of management, but especially middle management, I think gets mm -hmm. the short end of that stick. When I do this work, when I coach senior leaders up and down the organization, it's almost comical. But the thing that people say is, I never get feedback. Now, at the lowest levels of the organization, that is often a complaint, but at management and higher levels, it is always a complaint. 100% yeah. of the time, people are like, no one's telling me what's good, what's bad. Like, I'm just sort of out here on my own. And the higher you get in an organization, often the longer it has been since anybody has told you about your performance. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And people are hungry for it. Like people want to know that they're doing well and they don't want to screw up. And so they'd like to know <laughs> if they're screwing up, even though that might be more painful or difficult to hear. Mm -hmm. You know, people care, most people care about doing well at their yeah. job. And so I think this idea that, again, I talked about this at the beginning, like having this image, like my manager knows what they're doing and things are going really well for them and they're getting everything they need. And it's just me who's not getting what I need is like, it's such a distortion of what is actually happening in most organizations that it is almost comedy. You know what I'm saying? Like if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. Yeah, exactly. Listen, I know our time is almost up, so I'm going to pick one last question from a listener. Okay, let's go with this one. Why do so many managers and leaders struggle with radical candor and favor dishonesty and the long-term impacts of that such as not telling someone they are underperforming and the resulting longer term managing out of said employee, for example. Where does Jason think that's driven from? So that struggle with radical candor and supposedly the favor of dishonesty. Yeah. So I think you can take the word manager and leader out of there and you've got a really good question about human existence. I don't think this is a question about managers and leaders. I think this is a question about human beings. So why do human beings, why are we so afraid of, and I'm revealing my answer, like it is fear that stops people from talking about this stuff. It is fear of how you will be perceived at its root. It is a primal fear of being cast out of your tribe, that if yeah. you act in a way that causes disfavor with other people, that you will be cast out. Now this fear, it's in our biology. It is like so deep in us 
that it takes incredible emotional discipline and effort to overcome, to push past that fear and focus more on what other people need than our own survival. But that is what makes humans incredible. And that's what makes human advancement possible and human society. That's what leads to improvement of human society. But it is an act of bravery and generosity anytime anybody does that. And I don't think we give people enough credit. So part of the problem is we don't reward this behavior. Like someone will do this and we'll punish them for it. And they'll have that experience once or twice or three times. And then it is completely rational at that point not to continue to behave in that way. Like we can't blame them for it. I believe that when someone has institutional power, organizational, hierarchical, social power, I believe that with that power, with the privilege of that power brings, it creates an obligation. And the obligation is to push past one's own discomfort and to wield that power for the benefit of other people and not just the benefit of yourself. And so what I think of is like, is sort of above the line, below the line kind of a thing. Like, When I'm above the line, when I feel that discomfort, I see it as an opportunity. I say, like, my body, my emotional experience is telling me that I have the opportunity to do something of value. And if I can manage that discomfort and find a way to be clear and kind with this person, that I'm doing something that is of service to them, potentially of service to other people on the team, and is better for me in the long run. But when I'm below the line, I take that signal and I take it too seriously. And I'm like, there's a real risk that if I do this, I am going to be cast out. I am going to be seen as a terrible person. I am going to be disliked and disempowered by the people on my team. So even though I think that obligation exists, I have compassion for people who can't get above the line. You know what I'm saying? Who can't quite get to seeing it as an opportunity. I would encourage the person who asked this question to try to drum up some compassion. Now, I don't think that compassion needs to be a limitless well. I think we can hold leaders to a higher standard. I think we can expect them to live up to this obligation that comes with the power that they wield. But I think it's important to recognize that that is not a trait of leadership. That is a human trait. It is a human foible to be afraid to have these conversations and to remember that the question that you're asking when you find yourself in a position of power Mm -hmm. and questioning whether you should have the conversation with that person. Yeah. And actually, you have reminded me of one final question, Jason, because you've used the word compassion there. And the original version of the book that I read, obviously, was Radical Candor, but I picked this copy up recently because I think someone has stolen my original version. Okay, <laughs> And it talks about compassionate candor. So what's that about? Yeah. One of the most common mistakes that people made with Radical Candor was that they confused it with obnoxious aggression. They heard the words radical candor and they thought that that just meant saying whatever you want to the person as long as it's quote unquote truthful. Mm -hmm. And Radical Candor was not always the title of the book, meaning Kim didn't know it was called Radical Candor until shortly before publishing it. She toyed around with a bunch of other titles. And Compassionate Candor was one of the titles that she had planned to use. But there was a real worry that if she titled it Compassionate Candor, it would be a book about management written by a woman in Silicon Valley. And all those things taken together would make it sort of like people could feel like, ah, we can ignore that. It's a touchy-feely thing. And from her perspective, that's not what she was trying to communicate. And at the same time, we recognize that the word radical has this tendency to cause people to sort of lean into obnoxious aggression. So 
Kim, Amy, and I got together when we were doing the second edition of the book and said, let's talk about this problem and give people a target. And so compassionate candor was the target we identified. Brilliant. And actually, it's what I found as well. I was talking to people about radical candor. We would talk through the model. We would look at it. And then they would come back to me a couple of weeks later and they would go, I used that model radical candor. It was brilliant. I told that person exactly what they needed to know. And I would go, that's not radical candor. That's obnoxious aggression. Look, thank you so much for coming on, Jason. You know, everything that I do is about creating a better working world. And I believe that the way that we communicate is absolutely central to that. And I think radical candor should be at the heart of it or compassionate candor, if you prefer. (laughs) Okay. Really appreciate you giving us your time on the show today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I've learned so much from you and I hope that our listeners do too. Same here. I admire the work that you do. And I'm excited to hear what your listeners think. So if you get feedback on this episode, please feel free to reach out to me. And it has to be radically candid or compassionately candid feedback, okay? I'd prefer it, but I can accept some obnoxious aggression. I've built up a little bit of a tolerance. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to our listeners for listening. I hope you have found this episode to be interesting and useful. If you have any suggestions or ideas for the show, maybe topics you'd like to explore or people you think we should interview, even if you want to put yourself forward, please drop me an email using craig at vibranttalent.co.uk. If your company is struggling with talent attraction, engagement, or retention, I'd love to help you with our cultural evaluation and if necessary, transformation solutions. So please do drop me an email or check out the website vibranttalent.co.uk. If you have enjoyed the show, I would really appreciate if you would give it a five-star rating, a follow, and a share on social media so we can get these stories out to as wide an audience as possible, help people learn from them, and ultimately make a better working world together. That's it for this episode. See you next time. 